I'm Myrna McCollum, Métis Cree lawyer and passionate promoter of trauma-informed lawyering. Welcome back to the Trauma-Informed Lawyer Podcast, folks, season two. I believe that law schools and bar courses are missing a critical competency requirement in their curriculum, trauma-informed lawyering. Becoming a trauma-informed lawyer will, among other things, challenge you to critically reflect on your personal behaviors, beliefs, and biases call on you to positively transform the way you approach advocacy, guide your practice to avoid doing further harm to others, and ask that you commit to remaining open to learn new and old knowledge you didn't know you needed before beginning your career. Your education starts right here, right now. Huge gratitude to the BC Law Foundation for covering the costs for transcripts for season two of the trauma-informed lawyer podcast thank you so much bc law foundation chantelle sparkling eyes so good to meet you and oh my god is your name ever beautiful oh my god okay i'm so happy to have you here today talking with me about some of your experiences not only as a metis woman who has survived a lot had to overcome a lot that a lot of us as I think indigenous women across this country and even North America are really uh, familiar with, but also to hear from you how it is that we can do better as lawyers and judges and police officers who work within a system that doesn't always deliver justice uh, for Métis women, for indigenous women. And I'm just so excited to have this conversation with you today. So welcome, welcome to the Trauma-Informed Lawyer Podcast. So tell us, tell all of the listeners a little bit about who you are, where you come from, all of the 411 on Chantel, Sparkling Eyes. Just love your name. I'm going to, I'm just going to say your name together throughout this entire conversation because I can't just say Chantel. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Myrna, for having me on. Um, and for, you know, giving me the platform to kind of share my experiences and uh, my profession and, and what I'm doing in my life to um, support all of, you know, not just Métis women, but Indigenous women across Alberta. Um, so my name is Chantel Sparkling Eyes. <laughs> I, uh, my maiden name is Boucher. I am from uh, Northern Alberta, Lac La Biche. I belong to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 1. Um, I am married to a First Nations man. We have three children. Um, I am a team lead to a family violence program in my community. Um, I'm also a survivor of a lot of different types of abuse in my life, um, physical emotional, sexual, verbal, um, and I've kind of come full circle and am able to provide support to people who, you know, I was, I once was, and I'm honored to be able to walk in healing with so many different people. Um, Yeah, I'm just so excited to be here and be a part of this. Well, I'm so happy to have you here. I want to just, you know, honor all of the lived experience that you bring to this conversation. And I definitely um, was very um, hesitant to actually explore this subject with a survivor because of the trauma 
that um, might still be working on somebody's spirit and heart and all of that. And so just so the listeners are aware, I did my due diligence. We had a conversation before this. And one of the reasons why I felt really comfortable bringing Chantel on the show was because of her commitment and active work towards healing and overcoming because it sounded, um, because it was clear to me in our conversation that the traumas of your life have not defined you. And in fact, you have found ways to um, build yourself up in spite of those experiences and maybe even because of those experiences. And you are not just actively healing yourself and your family, but you are helping others who go through traumatic experiences now. So tell our listeners a little bit about your like the work that you're doing the education you're working on we want to know um, so i run a family violence program that provides educational support groups for men and women whose lives are impacted by family violence um intimate partner violence domestic abuse whatever you want to call it it's it's violence and um I have a social work background. I'm currently, I have a diploma in social work completed and I'm currently in my third year of my Indigenous Bachelor of Social Work degree uh, through the University of Blue Quills in St. Paul. Um, I attend a, a First Nations school that uh, what used to be a residential school. And so it's it's very impactful to me to know the history there and to be able to take a place that was meant to, um, you know, remove the culture from indigenous people and uh, be able to have an indigenized education base there. And so I'm, I'm very blessed to have this opportunity and um, I'm doing really well in school. My grades are pretty good, not to toot my own horn, but um Nothing wrong with tooting your own horn. I think we need to do that more often and let all the young ones know coming up behind us that that's totally okay to do that. Absolutely. And, and you know, when you put the work in and you experience the results, it's, it's one of the best feelings in the world because nothing worth having is going to be easy to come by. It's always going to take, you know, work and effort. And um, I it is because of my life experience that brought me down the path of the education that I chose. Um, I, I really do often say that if I wouldn't have went into social, social work, I definitely would have went into law. Um, I think it's because I you know, can argue my point in, on any platform. <laughs> I don't know if that's the, the Métis spirit in me or if it's the strong women who have raised me, but it's definitely a gift that I have. Um, and so I lived in an abusive relationship for seven years, and I also grew up in domestic violence. And that is, uh, you know, abuse was normalized to me always. And so it was natural for me to be with somebody who um, was physically aggressive with me. And I one day kind of just woke up and I thought, like, I don't want to do this to myself anymore. I don't want to do this to my children and I deserve better. And so I, I sought help at a woman's shelter in my community 
Um, and I started attending the groups that I, I run right now. And so I did that for about two years and started, you know, working on my soul wounds and trying to figure out who I am and what, what do I want in life. And um, I had a lot of really good people support me along the way. And it brought me into social work. And when I was done school, I went back to the place that I found help and said, like, you know, I'm, I'm actively working on myself, I've changed my life, give me a job. <laughs> so I started as a crisis intervention worker at, within the women's shelter and worked my way up. I was an outreach worker for uh, just over two years. And then I had an opportunity to be a program manager for the shelter. Uh, so I, I managed five different programs and I supervised uh, approximately 30 staff. I did that for about two and a half years and it, it was excellent experience, but it took me away from the frontline work that I wanted and the reason why I got into this field. And um, I, have, I have a way with words that gives me the ability to connect with people on a different level. And I wanted to get back to that. So uh, the job for the team lead position for the program that I'm in now became available and I applied for it and at the same time I applied to go back to school and the it just worked out like it was just meant to be and I've been in my position for just over a year now and I'm coming to the end of my third year for my education and I I get that connection with people I work with um, women who are you know, experiencing abuse and want to make changes in their life and I work with men who are abusive and want to make changes in their life and so I feel honored to have the position to support people in those changes. Um, I'm very open with my approach to work. I share openly you know and appropriately with my personal story and just I feel like it just makes it um, more comfortable for people to be honest about their experiences. And that's, that's my passion. It's my push. And yeah. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about, um, I mean, I don't want to go into the stories of that created the trauma. Um, but I do want to know when you were going through those experiences, like you mentioned already, uh, which I think for at least I know myself and many Indigenous people, I know that unfortunately is a common experience. And as a result of having had those experiences, did you ever go to the courts seeking protection or seeking accountability for your perpetrators? And if so, how did that go for you? Um, well, my first interaction with the legal system was when I was nine years old. Um, so I was physically abused as a child from my biological father. I lived with him for just over three years when I was young. And we, it came out after I was already removed from the home, but I have a sibling who was still living there. And um, it, one of his teachers had noticed just, you know, signs of abuse. And so it was reported and 
and it all started coming out the experiences that my brother and I had when we were living with our father. And so uh, he was charged with child abuse and we had to testify. Um, I remember going to court early in the morning and our court prep was, you know, like half an hour before our trial started. Um, We were put in a little room, uh, asked, you know, maybe five or six questions from the crown. And I remember him asking me, Um, if I knew about court or if I knew what would happen if I lied, things like that. And the kid that I was, I said, well, yeah, I know about court. Uh, I watched Law and Order with my (laughs) cook'em. And um, I don't even know if I should have been watching that at that age, but I watched it with my cook'em. So uh, that, but that was it. That was the extent of our court. And we got to review our statements and then we were put in a hallway and they called us in one by one. Uh, we weren't allowed to have anybody in the room with us. Um, we were there with my mom. And so by ourselves, one at a time, we went into the courtroom. Uh, in the room was the judge, um, my father, his lawyer, and the crown prosecutor, and my father's wife. And I was terrified. There was no court support Um know anything to provide me with coping, uh, nothing to make me feel safe. And I sat in front of my dad on the stand and, and had to openly say what happened to us there. And I was terrified. I was extremely vulnerable and I did not feel any resolution from it. Um, he was found guilty. However, he Led the country. He um, went to uh, in Europe. He was in Europe for 12 years. That's where his wife was from. And so he was essentially a fugitive on the run. Like he didn't have to serve any sentence. He didn't have to pay a fine. Um, and his needs in the whole process were, were put before us as children. And I don't like to think like, oh, it's, you know, it's because I'm native and, and he's a French Canadian Um, but at the same time, I can't ignore that that is a fact. And when I say like his needs were more important than mine, uh, during his sentencing, his lawyer had argued that, you know, he was a important member of the community. He was a business owner, the sole financial provider for his spouse, um, who was pregnant at the time. And so he had other children coming into the world and, And uh, so he was granted weekends instead of serving a consecutive sentence because because he was an an important person, apparently. And so he served two weekends, to my knowledge, and then before turning himself in for the third weekend is when he jumped on a plane and left the country. So um, just no, no healing came from that experience other than the work that I've put into myself. And um, I have also had experience in the court with my ex-partner who was my abuser and um, nothing really came of that either. Like it didn't even go to trial. Uh, he, He had one court appearance. He was put on probation for a year and that was it. Um, it was just not, 
you know, in the situation, like my, my life was genuinely in danger with him and, but it wasn't taken into consideration because women who are victims of domestic violence are often stigmatized in, in settings that way. And we're not, it's not taken seriously. We're not listened to. And again, the only healing that came from that situation was what I put into myself. And I, I believe that we need to be leaders in our own when we're working through traumas, when we're, you know, healing those soul wounds, but we need to know that there's support available in systems like the legal system. And in my experience, that's not the case. Yeah. Also, sorry, go ahead. What about for, um, so there will be some listeners who will say, oh, well, that was years ago. We now allow for accompaniment for minors when they have to testify in court, or we now have victim support services, or we now um, have a better understanding of how it is that we need to examine child witnesses, or um, we now are getting uh, educated in um, how to prosecute sexual assault cases. Um, What would you say about whether or not the system has come far enough from your early experience at nine years old in the courtroom to now. Do you think that there's been any advancements? Do you think that we're still making mistakes? Um, I absolutely think that there are still a lot of gaps in support. I have a relation who is a minor who Uh, was the victim of a a sexual assault from an adult male. And not much has changed so far. Um, There are things like victim service supports um, and support animals that can come to court with with the victim, um, agencies that, you know, provide coping boxes, uh, screens that protect the victim from during testifying so they don't have to look at their abuser. But Um, they're not made easily available. It's something that, you know, we have victim service workers that are uh, small offices that are covering huge regions. And so there's no opportunity to build relationship. Um, There's no communication. There is limited support and things have advanced, um, but not, not where they should be at not when the 23 year difference in my experience, there are more agencies out there, but the accessibility to them or the knowledge that they're out there is, is not where it should be. And, and so people fall through the cracks and they're re-traumatized in systems like the legal system. Well, tell me or tell us how, how that might be especially, or is it especially the case for, um, young Indigenous women and girls who are in these processes? Absolutely. Um, There's a lot of stereotypes, stigmatization, victim blaming. Um, You know, during the process of supporting my relation, it's, it was a lot of questions like, well, what was she doing there? did she say yes at first? Um, t- in, in my point of view, it, it doesn't matter what she was doing there. It doesn't matter if 
you say yes at first, the minute you say no, it's no and, and well, things and need plus, to stop. And plus she's a minor and the person who assaulted her was a adult. Exactly. So those those questions have no business being there. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, we've even experienced questions like, was she drinking? Um, no, she wasn't. And But because she's Indigenous, that was one of the, our first experiences. We, you know, right from the get-go of being at the hospital, to for her to be examined, to dealing with the police, it was not a good experience for us. And our our RCMP members over here, they they did the best that they could with what they had, but the the knowledge of Indigenous people, the history of us, the approach, you know, to appropriately communicate with us, it's it's just not there, and that's a huge problem because it it does harm to. Indigenous women, Indigenous girls, even Indigenous men who are and boys who are going through the system or are victims of any type of abuse, but like sexual abuse is, you know, that's a that's a life sentence for a person. And it takes a lot of work to overcome that. Or, you know, I don't know if you ever truly overcome it, but to work through it to be okay. Um yeah, I, as you say that, I'm just thinking about how um, I'm with you. I don't, as somebody who was sexually abused a lot as a child, um, I don't know that you ever overcome that. But um, I was thinking about, so Bessel van der Kolk is this well-known psychologist. He wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And I think I have it on my desk. The Body Keeps the Score, Healing Trauma. Um, and one of the things he says, and I'm just going to quote it for you because I happen to be writing about it this morning, is that he says, trauma is, is like, it's the event that happens, but it's the, it's not so much the event that we need to focus on. It's the current imprint of pain horror and fear that continue to live inside people after this event has occurred and so what I have discovered in my work um, as an adjudicator who had to examine folks who went through um, horrible sexual assaults as children whether it was 20 years earlier or 50 60 70 years earlier is that people who hadn't healed all of those experiences were still living in that state of horror and fear and terror and pain. And it would present almost immediately. And that I think is the first time I was ever challenged to think about, you know, that line that we often hear, oh, time heals everything, just give it time. Time heals nothing, right? Like what I've discovered in part, and, and, and I, I attribute this learning to uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, who has said, grief is really the great healer. We have to like grieve the things that we've experienced, the losses we've been through um, in order to find a new normal. So we're not living in this heightened state of extreme fear and horror and terror and pain that follows us through our lives. And so with that understanding in mind, in terms of how survivors particularly um, uh, 
survivors who have experienced horrific abuse as children might carry that into their adulthood. What sort of supports should the system be providing for folks who are still living with that current imprint? I think like first and foremost, we need to acknowledge that when we experience trauma as children, our brain gets stuck there. Um, we have a harder time to mature and grow. And so sometimes you have childlike responses and, and it's because we carry a wounded child inside of us that needs to be nurtured and loved and supported and, and reminded that it, you know, it's, it's gonna be okay, but we do have to feel those emotions. And when you don't feel those tough emotions that come from experiencing horrible hurts, such as sexual violence, we, you know, we have a higher chance of having serious health problems. We have a um, higher chance of struggling with addiction, self-medicating, um, doing whatever we can to, to suppress that trauma. And I believe that the support needs to start from day one when that abuse is, is reported. And there needs to be a platform to build relationships with the people who are supporting us. Um, we need culturally specific supports. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, Indigenous is an umbrella term. It encompasses all Native people. And, but there's, it, it neglects the differences that we have. I'm a Métis woman who's married to a First Nations man, and there are huge differences in our cultures. Um, even within the First Nations communities, like, you know, the ones that come to the top of my head right now in Alberta are like uh, Cree, Dene, uh, Blackfoot, all of those nations, there, there's differences within those nations itself. And so we need that culturally specific support. We need to see our own people, our own colors to feel comfortable and safe um, because of the history that indigenous people have with uh, settlers of this land, there, there is no trust. And, and we are trying to work towards reconciliation, but we have systems like the legal system that is, it's outdated and it continues oppression and marginalization and we, it needs to change. And so another big thing that I think needs to happen to be, you know, supporting victims of sexual violence and or any type of violence that causes trauma is um, we need collaboration between our legal professionals and Indigenous people. People need to learn about Indigenous people from Indigenous people. Um, we need to be taught the true history of things that have happened and, and why we see the issues that we do in Indigenous nations. And we also, you know, we need to stop victim blaming, first of all, that's one of the biggest things, but we need culturally appropriate approaches to law. That was a mouthful. And, but when I say that, I mean, we need, you know, we need to use medicines in trials. 
um, I smudge when I'm overwhelmed and I use sage because it's a woman's medicine and to have the opportunity to ground yourself before you do something, you know, very brave, but, but very vulnerable and very scary. Um, we need to feel comfortable and, you know, having the opportunity to smudge prior to doing that could make a big difference in the type of testimony that a person gives the strength that they have to do that. Um, we need court supports from beginning to after the trial. And I call it the holistic approach to court support. <laughs> um, we need constant, clear communication from the people who are helping us seek justice. Um, you know, court support or court prep two weeks before a trial, which I believe is the norm now. Um, it And in my experience with my relation supporting her, that is the, that's going to be her court prep is she'll meet the crown two weeks before the trial. And I mean, how do you feel comfortable or safe when there's, there's no relationship? And, and we've made many requests to have that meeting uh, well before <laughs> before that and we've been denied on multiple occasions and it, I, I can't wrap my head around that. Um, we need, we need um, court workers, advocates who have a relationship with us, meet with that person many times in between, in between the report and the trial. And another huge component that's missing is support after the trial because that hurt doesn't end at the end a lot of times people don't get the level of justice that they're seeking if they get any justice at all um i've you know i've supported many people in my position who have sought justice in the court system but nothing came from it their their abuser got off and there's no healing there there's it's not a place where people can feel safe. And so we need to ensure that we have, you know, westernized and indigenized supports in place for that victim after the trial. We need to do our due diligence to help people get out of that victim mentality. One of the reasons I've heard prosecutors say they don't want to meet early on with victims is, you know, for fear that the victim may make a spontaneous statement that maybe is inconsistent with their original evidence and could be problematic when it comes time to go to trial. But what I would say to folks who raise that argument is a reason to not connect is you need to first abandon that idea. Um, and secondly, if you frame your approach as first building relationship as opposed to doing trial prep, there's two differences there. There's relationship building and inquiring. What do you need? How can I help you go through this process in a way that allows you to feel safe, empowered, informed, and understood? That doesn't require a prosecutor to get into rehashing the story or the event that brought them together. It, it's a whole separate thing that is taking into account 
what it is that this person needs to feel supported. And I'm not suggesting that um, prosecutors become that support. But once you know what people need, then maybe you could do your due diligence, do better to, to put them together with people who can help support them as they go through the process. So I, I, I'm with you, Chantal. I think there needs to be a relationship slash introduction building component to ensure that people feel safe and supported as they go through these processes. And then there, of course, is the trial prep, which could come later, closer in time to the actual trial. But I'm hearing you talk about the importance of building relationships with people. And it's hard to do that when either um, the Crown or the police or whoever the justice actors are, take no interest in the victim or in the indigenous victim and, and understanding what it is that they need to feel safe and empowered as they go through these processes. I think that, you know, there's even, there's no understanding of even something like an indigenous trauma response. Um, in my life and, and the people that I've grown up around, humor is a huge element of Indigenous personality, Indigenous identity. You know, we, we love to joke, we love to tease. Um, and when we experience trauma, we, we cope through laughing. And in my advocacy for my relation, she had, I call it disassociate, she disassociated from the situation. And she was, you know, joking, laughing, and I was taken aside and asked, do you think this really happened? Because she's not reacting like somebody who was just, you know, assaulted. And it took everything in me to just, you know, take a deep breath, be calm. Um, I really wanted to get frustrated, but I, I also know that when you don't respond appropriately or react to uh, ignorances like that. Um, people don't take you serious. And so I just calmly said, this is her trauma response. And, and I know many people who have, you know, they say something uh, that's a trauma statement and then laugh right after. And it's not, it's not because we think it's funny. It's not because it didn't happen. It's not grounds to not believe that person. It is a way to hide the shame and the pain that you feel from being victimized or brutalized, however you wanna look at it. And people need to understand that. It's, it's a way to mask that emotion. And if, you know, I, for me personally, if I'm gonna be having to pick between crying in front of strangers who don't know me and don't know anything about me. Uh, and I have to pick between crying and laughing. I'm going to laugh. Uh, I don't want to seem vulnerable because I feel when that vulnerability comes out, you get judged either way. Um, again, with like victim blaming and things of that nature. And so to understand well, that's a part of us, we have to address that. Let me ask you this question, because as I listen to you, I think now about Cindy Gladue. And for those who don't know, Cindy Gladue was a Métis mom, 
and sister and daughter and she was loved by her family and her community she was brutally murdered in a hotel by a fellow named bradley barton that matter went to trial in alberta a couple of times and ultimately and most recently maybe three times now he's finally been convicted of manslaughter but it had to go to the supreme court of canada and it what was really shocking about the trial of bradley barton in an alberta courtroom was that at various points in in the original trial Cindy Gladue was repeatedly referred to as that native woman, never referred to by name or rarely referred to by name by all parties that were in the courtroom. So they were all complicit in dehumanizing her by not by refusing to even identify her by name. And if that wasn't bad enough, the crown decided and the court allowed for her vagina to be preserved and introduced into court as evidence to demonstrate the wound that led to her bleeding to death and ultimately you brought about all of this all all of these uh legal processes and that had never been done in canada before and as a former prosecutor i was shocked because i thought there are other ways in which you can introduce this evidence a coroner's report photographs whatever I just thought as a and as a Métis woman as well I was stunned and dismayed and disturbed by the justice system's treatment of Métis of this Métis woman and what that signals to other Métis women in this province and across Canada about what our worth is and I'm curious, Chantelle, about how you experienced that when all of this, all of these things were being reported in media. I was horrified. Um, I prayed for her children and her mother every day. Every time I lit my smudge, I, you know, even now still, her mother is fighting in court to have her remains that were cut from her to be returned so that she can lay her daughter to rest in the way that she deserves. Um, her children and her mom had to sit in a courtroom on three different trials and to, to seek any kind of justice and witness her body parts being put on display. And that is you know, the, the trauma that they are probably still dealing with as a result of that, it, it hurts my heart on a level that I, you know, it, it makes me emotional to think of that because do we, do we not matter? Do, are we not people? Like, say her name. She's a person. There's no humanity in the legal system and it's horrible it's for, for all marginalized populations in Canada and I'm sure across the world. And as a, as a Métis woman, like my spirit matters. I'm a human and I matter and I refuse to be dismissed. And, you know, 
to be identified as that Native woman, yes, I am a Native woman, and I'm proud of that. I have overcome so many things in my life that, you know, people who don't experience those things could never understand. And the history of where that comes from, the normalization of patriarchal violence, that has to be acknowledged. And we need to see each other as people. There's, you know, there's a statement that I often hear from non-Indigenous people that is, you know, I don't see color. Um, I don't agree with that statement at all. I think that to be respectful, we need to say, yes, I see your color. I respect your color and what you go through because of that color. And we are still humans together collectively because that is true reconciliation. And we don't, we don't get that in, in government systems. And in my experience, you know, I've never experienced a true form of justice. And I truly hope that with what I'm, you know, going through and navigating right now, I truly hope that we do. I'm also not holding my breath or counting on it. Um, well, I want to I wanna pivot into how we can do better. And I'm going to just share with all of our listeners and you uh, something the Supreme Court of Canada said in um, when that Bradley Barton matter went to the Supreme Court in 2019. Their very first paragraph, they said, we live in a time where myths, stereotypes, and sexual violence against women, particularly Indigenous women and sex workers, are tragically common. Our society has yet to come to grips with just how deep-rooted these issues truly are and just how devastating their consequences can be. Without a doubt, eliminating myths, stereotypes, and sexual violence against women is one of the more pressing challenges we face as a society. While serious efforts are being made by a range of actors to address and remedy these failings, both within the criminal justice system and throughout Canadian society more broadly, this case attests to the fact that more needs to be done. Put simply, we can and must do better. What advice do you have, Chantel, about how we can and must do better? We need to understand and respect different worldviews. Indigenous worldview is very different than Western worldview. And there is an overrepresentation of Western worldview in Indigenous lives. Um, we... We need to change the approach to law school. I personally believe we need uh, Indigenous law schools. We need to see more Indigenous people in all levels of the law, from RCMP uh, or any policing agencies, um, court advocates, court supports, lawyers, judges, in all levels of it. We, we need that. We need a trauma... <laughs> Supreme Court judges. Yes, all the way up to the top, we need that. Um, we, need, we need to understand that a trauma... Oh. Why is that important? Like, why is that important to bring um, a cult, like somebody who reflects the society that they are serving, somebody who understands trauma, who understands the important connection between ceremony and um, 
culturally specific supports, um, somebody who understands that when we bring Indigenous people into the justice system, we're bringing them into a system that is imposed upon them and is therefore um, not a welcoming environment given his, what history has told us about what those places inflict upon Indigenous people. Why is it important to bring um, that lived experience and that knowledge into these spaces? The first thing that comes to mind for that is because we have, that will create a voice that takes us serious. Um, we can, you know, we've been talking for years and advocating for years about the changes that are needed, but unless you're in the right platform, those things aren't taken serious. And it provides a different perspective. It humanizes us. Um, because like I said, when there, you know, there is no humanity in this system. And, and often when people look at Indigenous people, they, they don't look at it in a, in a respectful way that we are humans also. Um, and it makes it safer for us to report. I know in my own experience, the, um, the treatment and the re-traumatization that I experienced going through the court as a child prevented me from reporting sexual abuse that I experienced in my life. On more than one occasion, um, I have been through a lot of things that I never reported because I never wanted to be unvalidated on that level again. And that's why we have so many assaults and on all levels that, that are not reported. And it, then we have people walking around with all this hurt and hurt people hurt other people. And so it just, you know, it's a vicious cycle. And so we need that comfort and advocacy and understanding in all levels of the legal system. We, something else I wanted to also talk about too, is the, um, the rights that victims have in in the court process, like offenders have more rights than the victim in that. Victims have five rights in my, like in my recent research, that's what I've learned. And the wording of it is so vague that it causes a lot of gray area to have those rights dismissed. And I don't agree with it. What are those five rights, Chantel? Um, so you have the right to information. You can request information about the court process and have it provided to you, what to expect, what's expected of you. Um, but in my experience, you, you don't get answers. <laughs> you have the right to protection. Um, so privacy, especially if you are like a minor and things of like that, your name can't be released. Um, you have a right to a screen to protect you from having your abuser look at you. Uh, you have the right to participation. So you can actively participate in, in your trial, um, which to me, like that's kind of expected why I'm reporting this crime. <laughs> uh, you have the right to restitution. So you can request that a judge orders the offender to provide you with monetary um, you know, to pay you to, which, you know, I, 
money doesn't heal things. So I understand that it can open the door to have access to uh, supports that can provide healing. Um, but uh, we recently in Alberta, we used to have this thing called the Victims of Crime Fund. Fund. So if you were a victim of a crime, um, you could get money from the government that would go to your healing. Uh, because, you know, counselors and psychologists are quite pricey to access. And if you don't have the benefits to cover that, but we no longer have that. And it's really unfortunate that we, it's not an option for people anymore. Uh, but back to the rights, the last and final right is you have a right to make a complaint. If you feel that you uh, had been denied the first four rights, but it, within those rights, what is actually pertaining to the crime and what is actually pertaining to the trial or the process um, or access to supports or anything of that um, you know, an offender has the has a right to a speedy trial, but victims wait years to even see a courtroom. And within those years that they're waiting, they're in limbo. There's no support provided, and it's you know, it's it's so unfortunate because it it keeps people stuck in that hurt. And like I said, in in my experience with supporting my relation her assault happened in 2019 it's now been put off until 2022 the summer of 2022 and so that opens the door for things to be dismissed the longer we wait the more rights her her abuser has and the less she has and that's a serious problem like that's something that needs to be addressed as soon as possible. And we also need more firmer wording for those rights. Wholeheartedly, it needs to be changed. Yeah, I'm thinking yeah. a couple things as you talk about this, Chantel. One is, uh, you know, here in Canada, we have um, uh, a, a case that went to the Supreme Court of Canada, Jordan, which uh, was a case that discussed the de delays and right to trial, like right to um, trial in a reasonable time. And essentially where there is more delay, and I, I can't remember what the formula is because I've been out of the game a while, but where there is a delay that has exceeded so many years or months, the charge will be stayed. And we're seeing people just walk away um, because of delay. And I'm sure this pandemic has created even more delay. So what we're going to see is more people who've been charged with very violent crimes, never being held accountable because their lawyer will make a delay argument. And I'm, so I'm hearing you say that, which is really valid. I'm also hearing you say that with the delay comes the inability to allow the victim to move forward and do the healing and put this put this horrific experience of their lives behind them. It's constantly over their heads, weighing on them, weighing on them. And then all the fear associated with the impending um, trial that is coming and being put on the stand and what's going to happen and the uncertainty that comes with it. We have, you know, we have offenders who are using the law and the legal system to discredit the person that they victimized. And it's, how shameful is that? 
It's true. I mean, Elaine Craig is a professor at Dalhousie University. She wrote a book uh, called Putting Trials on Trial. And a lot of what's in that book is exactly this, the ways in which uh, uh, accused persons and their lawyers whack victims and really um, put them through the ringer, uh, demoralize them, uh, embarrass them in an effort to either hope they don't return to court after a preliminary hearing uh, to testify so that the, the charges end up being stayed um, or to just uh, successfully uh, allow their client to get off on these charges. So definitely the treatment of victims experiencing sexual assault, um, there's no shortage of instances where their treatment is demoralizing, disrespectful, and um, outright shocking, I would say. So what do you think it's going to take, Chantel, to put some credibility back into a system that right now has no credibility, especially for victims of sexual violence, and maybe even more especially for Indigenous women and girls who we know in this country are at high risk for becoming, uh, for being murdered, for being uh, raped, for being, uh, for going missing. Um, what do you think it's going to take in addition to staffing all of these positions with people who look like us and who come from the same lived experience and who understand the connection to culture and ceremony? What else is it gonna take? Loud action. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, we live in a society where policies and laws hurt people every single day. And those policies and laws need to be updated. They need to match the needs of the people that they're serving. Um, we can't continue to function on a system that was, you know, I don't mean this in a rude way, but it's, I always will speak my truth. Um, the system was made by white people for white people. And that needs to change. We need, the system was built hundreds of years ago on, <laughs> on outdated ideals. Uh, even calling it the justice system is misleading. Um, you know, can we change the name to un, the unjust system? <laughs> it's easy to make statements. It's easy to say, yes, this needs to change, but what comes after it? And I think even things like, um, you know, the calls to action for MMIW, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, um, calls to action for reconciliation. Where is the action? Because it's easy to say words, but our actions need to match it. And we, we need to do better. We need more educated Indigenous people expecting change, um, demanding change, working together to create that change and building that bridge to, you know, fill those gaps. There should be an elder involved in absolutely every court case that involves an Indigenous victim. If, and, and I mean that respectfully, if that person identifies with, with their spirituality and their culture, um, because because so much was taken from us, we have a, a lot of indigenous people who um, who are religious and and that's okay, uh, but it needs to be an option at least. 
do you practice your culture? Are you traditional? Um, if the answer is yes, that elder should be brought in from the get-go. Everything in this world, Indigenous people are in relationship with. And that is why relationship throughout the court process is so important. And when you're talking about spiritual items, even something as simple as a rock, that's a grandfather to us. That's a grandfather spirit. And we need to honor and respect that. And if you don't know that, then you need to seek that knowledge. You need to go to an elder or a knowledge keeper and follow protocol and offer tobacco or print and, and ask for that. Like I said, like learn about Indigenous people from Indigenous people. That is true reconciliation. That is decolonizing justice for Indigenous people. And that's what is needed. We, we need to respect that we see the world different. We experience the world different. But we need to be open to listening to one another. And that's, it's very one-sided currently. And that's a big thing that needs to change. And, and I'm, you know, I know that things aren't going to change overnight, but even incorporating circle process, restorative justice, learning about those things and, and how you, you seek true healing through listening and redemption. And I think about your podcast with, um, with, the author of Peace and Good Order. I'm reading that book right now. Harold Her Johnson. Yes. <laughs> I couldn't remember his last name, but I remember his first name and I can see his face in my mind. <laughs> um, and his, his story of, of redemption involving his brother and, and the person who was, who had killed him in, in the accident. And so the, the power that comes from forgiveness and redemption is on a level that I don't think this world has fully understood yet. But that is traditionally the Indigenous way. And, and it's through restorative justice that we seek that. And we, we need to at least incorporate those pieces. If, if it can't change the way it should, we need to just be more open to including things outside of the Western norm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, not to say that we would ever put a sexual assault victim and their perpetrator in some kind of restorative justice process, just so the listeners understand. We're not advocating yes. that. We're, what we're saying is that folks need to understand the connection that indigenous people have to each other and the value of relationships that that really guide their their practices and their spirituality and even their laws and that within there within that culture is oftentimes space for conference space for redemption and rehabilitation and repar reparation of harm in all contexts because we have to 
it's all about making people whole again who do harm and that's a conversation I think maybe for another podcast Chantel but uh, having that it's important to understand that if we really want to end sexual violence, particularly as we experience it in Indigenous communities, we have to make space for the conversation that we need to allow folks to be rehabilitated and to um, offer reparations for the harm that they have caused. Absolutely. And that is um, 100% my intent behind behind that statement. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like, you know, I myself would not want to be in circle um, with people who have abused me in my life, especially in the sexual aspect. But our system does not allow for redemption um, to understand the harm that perpetrators cause because the system supports their rights more than victims. And so how do you, how do you learn what you've done is wrong or not okay and detrimental to another person's overall well-being if if you don't have to face the consequences of it so it's there just needs to be inclusion we need to be included in the process we need we need to have power in our voices to make decisions for ourselves or at least be included in the decision making. Yeah, so I'm hearing you say our ways need to be reflected in these legal processes and and you're right about the criminal justice system. It's either about protecting the rights of the offender or it is about um, denunciation or punishment. So prison is punishment, but that doesn't necessarily do anything to hold people accountable to make space for redemption, to make space for reparation. And it becomes really complex when we're talking about an offender and a victim who are either from the same nation or the same community and all of the complexities that come with that. And then it's even compounded further if we're talking about an offender and a victim within a family structure, whether it's extended or nuclear. And uh, the prison system and the justice system does nothing to address that relationship and the trauma gets compounded on its own when a victim has to continuously see their abuser in their community or in their family because of the extended period of time that they're waiting for their trial and it you know it it just it deepens that soul wound that you carry for your life Chantel sparkling eyes. This has been (laughs) such an awesome conversation, a heavy conversation, but how can it's, it's really hard to make light of such an important subject. And we touched on a lot of stuff today. So I really hope that, um, as you walk away from this zoom session with me, and as I do, so we both individually do something to kind of cleanse some of the heaviness that we brought into the conversation but it was definitely a necessary conversation for our listeners who are asking themselves how do we serve victims of violence in a way that is trauma-informed and culturally responsive and how do where are we getting it wrong and how can we do better and I think that you have done a tremendous job of giving us a uh, a roadmap to at least finding a new way forward because we need a new way forward. 
So thank you. Well, thank you so much for, you know, giving me the opportunity to share my experience and, and my beliefs on what needs to change and how we can get there and, um, you know, getting on my level with me. And I am, I, I think that something I want to say to end it off is that talking is healing and we need to be open to listening to each other's stories because we all have one and making that, you know, holding that safe space for each other is, is key in all of this. And so thank you for holding that space for me and, and giving me this opportunity and definitely self-care is key. Uh, we have to take care of our, ourselves so that we can care for others. And and I just want to remind people who are listening that holding that space for people empowers healing. It fosters healing. And that's what we need. Support each other in overcoming and working through those tough emotions and healing those soul wounds. So thank you again, Myrna. Treat people like you are in relationship with them. Yes. And that's how we bring humanity back into this space. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take care of yourselves. This episode was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam people. 